0: The following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. chapter 5, verses 1-7, to seven. and it reads, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear amen let's pray god return our hearts to you at this time as your people and your words are life to us so nourish us with your words of life nourish us with the work of your holy spirit who gives us your son jesus christ and help us to respond with humility and obedience and hunger for the things that you desire to give to us this day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before I get into what I want to share with you this morning, we're going to start with a uh, little movie clip. And uh, I've been kind of joking about it at ICC that uh, uh, every sermon I've been preaching in Ecclesiastes, I've been introducing with a movie clip. And so this has almost sort of become the movie series. But the clip that I want to show you today uh, comes from uh, the 2002 uh, sci-fi thriller by M. Night Shyamalan uh, called Signs. And so let's just go ahead and take a look at it, and then uh, we'll go on from there. On the surface of it, um, Signs seems like just another one of those sci-fi dramas about an alien invasion. But it's actually a much deeper story about the search for faith a priest, he's actually a priest, a priest named Graham, played by Mel Gibson, uh, abandons his calling. And in fact, he even abandons his belief in God after his wife is killed, struck by a car when she's taking a walk after dinner one evening. And for Graham, this accident seems to reveal to him that there is no larger meaning to life, no higher power who is watching over us orchestrating the events of our lives. In its randomness, Graham comes to view the world as just brutal and cruel. Everything is meaningless. In contrast, his brother Merrill, as well as his son and daughter, are desperate for signs that God is still there, that there is a greater meaning to life. But because their father, their brother Graham, has lost his faith, He has abandoned them in this search for understanding. And he's unable to show them the leadership that they desperately are seeking from him to help them in this search. There's a couple scenes in Graham's bedroom where you can clearly see that there was once hanging a cross on the wall. But since that time, Graham has taken it down. But still remains a faint outline of where the cross was once hanging. And I think Shyamalan used that as a symbol to basically show that Graham's struggle with faith is not so simply over by him walking away from God. And in essence, the rest of the movie plays out his recovery of his faith in light of the events that are unfolding around him. The writer of Ecclesiastes, who calls himself Kohelet in Hebrew, which could probably best be translated as the preacher is on a quest for signs as well. He's on a journey in search for the meaning of life under what he calls life under the sun. And when the preacher talks about life under the sun, he's not talking about life as it's supposed to be, where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and everything happens just as you would expect. When he talks about life under the sun, he's talking about life as we actually experience it with all of its messiness and contradictions and disappointments. The preacher isn't diplomatic about the problems that he has with the world or with the God that has made it either. He pulls no punches. He calls it just like he sees it. And with brutal honesty, he expresses his struggle to make sense of life under the sun. And yet woven through it all, we get glimpses of wisdom gained, By the preacher, as he comes to a deeper understanding of God and his ways. And whether you or not you realize it, you and I are on the same quest for signs, aren't we? Aren't we all looking for signs to confirm to us that God is in charge? That everything happens for a greater purpose. And at times I think we find these signs: an answered prayer, an inner confirmation of his presence in your spirit. Circumstances so unusual that it defies the conclusion that it was just coincidence, fate, randomness. But on the other hand, we also encounter plenty of seasons in life where the signs feel like they're nowhere to be found. An unanswered prayer, a painful tragedy, wandering in a spiritual desert, with no sign of God's presence to be felt. I read to you the quote that I'm about to show you at the beginning of our series in Ecclesiastes penned by C.S. Lewis, the great apologist of the 20th century within a year of the death of his beloved wife Joy Davidman and he writes when you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise you will be or so it feels welcomed with open arms but go to him when your need is desperate when all other help is vain and what do you find a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside after that silence you may as well turn away the longer you wait the more emphatic the silence will become There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present, a commander in our times of prosperity, and so very absent a help in times of trouble? This is Lewis in his most honest moments of life. Why did you take my wife? from me. Couldn't you have healed her? This is the pain and confusion of life under the sun. In some moments, God feels so near to us, and yet in others, he's nowhere to be found as far as we can tell. And it's in light of this that we turn to our passage this morning in Ecclesiastes Chapter 5, the preacher begins with these words, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. When the preacher says, guard your steps when entering God's house, what he is basically saying is, be careful about the attitude with which you come to God in worship. And I think the implication is this. Often, our normal mindset with which we go through an average week is not the appropriate mindset when we enter God's house for worship. There is, in other words, a wisdom in pausing for a moment when you enter God's sanctuary and preparing your heart for worship. What specifically does this preparation look like? Well, the preacher tells us that when we come to worship, we ought to be in a posture of listening rather than speaking. What I want to say to you is that words are some of the most powerful tools that we possess in our lives. We speak, in other words, when we want to impact our world, when we want to influence others and communicate our will to them. We speak. A mother scolding her wayward child. A businessman trying to seal the deal of a difficult negotiation. Lovers wooing one another. A teacher praising her student. In other words, in most of our life, this is the general posture that we take of speaking, not of listening. Because we speak to affect the people around us, to get our will to get the things accomplished that we want to get accomplished. But the primary posture of worship is to listen to what God wants to say to us. What does the preacher mean when he says that we shouldn't offer the sacrifice of fools? Well, I think verse 2 explains it. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, the sacrifice of fools are the careless words that we're likely to speak to God in haste, without deeper reflection or understanding of what we're even saying to Him. They just come out of our mouths without any thought. There's no reflection, no understanding. We just speak them out of habit. This is the sacrifice of fools. The preacher makes this interesting comparison, in fact, when he says, it's sort of like this, like when you're really stressed out and busy, your nights tend to get filled with a lot of vivid dreams, right? Doesn't that ever happen to you? When you've got a lot on your mind during the day, you go to bed, and the busyness just carries over into sleep. He says, in the same way, a fool's mouth is filled with way too many words for his own good, right? He's just talking and talking and talking, and it's all garbage that's coming out. Now, just about now, I suspect that you quiet, mousy introverts in this room are probably feeling pretty smug and self-righteous. While all you blabbermouth extroverts who talk before you think are squirming in your seats a little. But I don't think that the preacher is talking about some introvert-extrovert dynamic here. The truth is that all of us talk more than we listen. I just want to challenge you to think about the way that you relate to other people in conversation. Diedrich Bonhoeffer says this, there is a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. This impatient, inattentive listening really despises the other person and finally is only waiting to get a chance to speak and thus to get rid of the other. Piercing words, isn't it? It doesn't matter whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. We can all identify with this tendency, can't we? I mean, you're, with a group of event, you're with a group of friends, and a friend is sharing about something that happened in her life, and it triggers a similar experience that you had, right, as they're still talking, and now you can't hardly wait to just to get finished and telling their dumb story. So that you can tell your even better story, right? I mean, haven't we all been guilty of that at some point? Or you're in an argument with someone like your spouse, and you're already formulating the defense against what they're saying to you before they're even done speaking, and you never actually really are listening to what they're trying to tell you about you. We're all much better at talking than we are at listening. Um, In the past, to my church anyway, I've talked about what psychologists often often refer to as self-talk. And that's the inner voice inside all of our heads that never seems to shut up, right? Uh, What's wrong with you? I can't believe you did that. You'll never amount to anything. Or, can you believe how stuck up she is? I can't believe she can act like that and call herself a Christian. I'm so stumbled. Whether you direct it to other people or whether it's reflected inwardly at yourself. Self-talk is, in essence, your noisy soul speaking to itself. And I've come to realize that often that noise of the inner voice is far louder and busier in introverts than in extroverts. In other words, they may seem quiet on the outside, but there's a whole conversation happening in here. John Orberg writes, Our thought patterns become as habitual as brushing our teeth, After a while, we don't even think about them. We get so used to bitter thoughts or anxious thoughts or selfish thoughts that we don't even notice what we are thinking about. I want to challenge you. What's the self-talk that's been going on in your mind since this morning began and you woke up to your alarm this morning? What are the thoughts that have been preoccupying your mind in the course of this worship service? Maybe for some of you it goes something like, I don't feel worthy to be here right now after the week that I've had. Or for some of you, it may be, I'm really uncomfortable. I don't know anyone here. I don't know if anyone's going to talk to me after service is done. For some of you, it could be, I could be golfing right now. Why is it so cold in here? Why is it so cold at harvest? (laughs) (laughs) Who are all these people? Should the bears have cut Jordan Palmer? <laughs> I don't know. It's a, um, all of this is pretty distracting, isn't it? This inner voice. And I want to argue that this is the normal state of our hearts. And this is the heart that we bring into worship. It's a noisy heart. It's a talkative heart that's filled with ourselves. And it's this noisy heart that needs to be stilled when we come into the presence of God to seek Him. What are some of the ways in which we may offer a sacrifice of fools? Well, it could be something like offering insincere praise from our lips, mouthing words that we don't even really mean. They just have it. It's just because it's up there on the screen. We're just going through the motions. Or it could be demanding something of God in prayer because we have a need in our life, presuming that we even know what's best for our lives, and just asking God to do what we want. We're given a very specific reason why we need to still our hearts with silence in the context of worship in verse 2. What the preacher tells us is, do not, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? Well, here it is. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, we need to be quiet and listen because God has a vantage point that is infinitely greater than our own. He sees what we cannot see, He knows what we cannot know. He is infinitely wise while we are unbelievably limited in our wisdom. As the great prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, coming with that kind of presumptuous attitude toward God, as if we can tell Him how we ought to rule the universe, is like walking into the room, having someone walk into the room while you're watching your favorite television show. And after just watching literally two seconds of the show, the person dismissively declares, well, that's a dumb show. I mean, how would you feel if someone did that to you? You're, you're an idiot. Do you know anything about this show? How can you possibly make that judgment after two seconds? How can you declare that this is a dumb show? And in essence, though, I think, That's what the Bible says about our relationship with God. I think in essence this is what we're saying here. There is a legitimate time for asking tough questions and struggling honestly to understand God and His ways. But there is also a time then we must learn how to still our hearts and simply give worship to God, even when we don't have all the answers, even when everything doesn't make sense from our vantage point in worship in other words we humble ourselves recognizing and accepting our place in his creation God does not reveal everything to us he is not obligated to explain everything that he does to our liking but by faith we can still trust him and stand in awe of him the psalmist says in Psalm 131 O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is not talking about some kind of dumbed-down, anti-intellectual faith. But it does mean that we have to come to a point where we acknowledge our very real limitations to understand our world and simply to learn the humility of being still and letting God be God and worshiping Him for who He is. I think in truth there are also a lot of times that we enter into worship with discontented hearts because things aren't working the way we wish they were. Things aren't going our way. And the danger is that we can try to use worship to manipulate God to do what we want Him to do. In fact, I think manipulation is a perfect summary for almost every religion that exists in our world today. The quid pro quo for earning God's favor and getting Him to do what I want Him to do for me. And our worship becomes like a bargaining chip that we use against him. I'll do this for you, God, if you will do this one thing for me. In fact, I think it's this issue of trying to manipulate God through our worship that prompts the preacher to address the issue of vows that he does in the preceding verses. Verses 4 to 6. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? The preacher warns to be very careful about making promises to God. And that frankly, it's better not to do it at all. Now, verse 6 is a little bit confusing when he says, do not go before the messenger and tell him it was a mistake. Historians tell us that in those days, the priest had messengers working at the temple. And if you were a worshiper and you came to the temple, and during the course of that worship, you made some kind of promise to God. God, I will do this for you. Usually, it was some kind of financial commitment of some kind of offering that you were going to give him. And these messengers would be dispatched by the priest when your commitment came due. And they would collect the money. And so the picture we're given here is of someone who tries to manipulate God with a vow. And when the temple messenger comes to claim the offering, he backs out of his commitment and says, whoa, 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 I was just kidding. That was a mistake. I didn't really mean it. And he doesn't honor his commitment. He says, God despises that. He despises that kind of interaction with people. I want you to just think about that for a minute. Why do we make vows and oaths, swear oaths, in the first place? Why do we even do that? Have you ever thought about the psychology of making vows? Well, if you sort of break it down, usually we make a promise to someone, or we make a deal with someone, we make a vow when we're nervous that our word by itself doesn't hold water. Isn't that the case, usually? When you don't think you are going to be able to get what you really want from that person, we up the ante by making them a promise, a vow, swearing an oath. And so, in essence, a vow is a negotiation tactic. It's leverage, to try to get something that we want. And the real danger is we apply that to our relationship with God. If you'll just forgive me this one last time, I swear, I promise, I vow, I will never commit that sin again. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Just forgive me one more time and I swear to you, God, never ever again. You see, When you're desperate enough, it's hard to resist the temptation, not to try to use your religious devotion and your worship as a negotiation tactic against God. I remember way back in third grade when I went to the eye doctors and realized in my young tender childhood I was going to be having to wear glasses for the rest of my life. I kid you not, for a week I pleaded with God in prayer, and I said, if you would only heal my eyes, God. I swear to you, I will live for you all the days of my life. I will go to church every single Sunday, Lord. Third grader, third grader. And I was already doing this. Because I hated how I looked in classes. You know, I was thinking, everyone got me four eyes at school and everything like that. And I, I dreaded it. And so for a week, I pleaded, and I kid you not, I would take off the glasses and look around to see if it was healed. Um, Back when I was a missionary in Africa, I remember offering those same kind of prayers as an adult. Uh, When I was stuck, I was actually impaled in my forearm by a bloody HIV-positive needle when I was performing resuscitation on an AIDS patient in Kenya and just staring at this needle stuck in my arm and realizing what the implications of this could mean for my life. And for months after that exposure, I was praying to God, I will work even harder for you, God, as a missionary, if you will just keep me from becoming HIV positive and let me live. It was like that prayer of Hezekiah, you know? Um, Just let me live, and I will be even a better missionary for you, God. Because I, in truth, was terrified. I was terrified. And there was nothing I could do about it. Just to let you know, I am HIV negative, but I still wear glasses. Okay, so... (laughs) (laughs) When your need is desperate enough, and when you're helpless enough, it's hard not to be tempted to try to strike a deal with God isn't it? The problem with making these kind of vows, though, isn't just that you may not be able to keep them, but because this is fundamentally not the way that God invites us to relate to Him, asking us what we have to offer in return for what He can do for us. Instead, He invites us simply to come to Him by faith, asking for the things that we need simply because we trust in His goodness. And his love for us. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 verses 7 to 8. And when you pray do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard with their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need. Before you ask him. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message of the cross. There is no negotiating table at the altar of God. Jesus paid every debt that we owed to God on our behalf. Our part is simply to receive by faith what he already desires to freely give to each one of us who are in Christ Jesus. Well, Let me just close with these thoughts. When the Bible tells us to enter worship with a quiet heart and a listening ear, I think this is probably confusing to a lot of you. It sounds very poetic, but practically I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, Does this mean that God is going to speak to me? I'd say yes. I sincerely believe that God still speaks to his people as he did in the days of the Bible. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we need to hear the voice of God. In our lives. Dallas Willard writes, Hearing God, a daring idea. Some would say presumptuous and even dangerous. But what if we were made we are made for it? What if the human system simply will not function properly without it? There are good reasons to think it will not. The fine texture, as well as the grand movements of life, show the need. Is it not, in fact, more presumptuous and dangerous to undertake human existence without hearing God? God has created us for intimate friendship with Himself, both now and forever. This is the Christian viewpoint. It is made clear throughout the Bible. As with all close personal relationships, we can surely count on God to speak to each of us when and as it is appropriate. And I sincerely believe that we can grow in this experience of hearing God's voice. And I think the two biggest obstacles to hearing that voice is one is we don't expect to hear it. There's just no expectation on our part. And so we come to worship service after worship service never with a listening posture because frankly, we're not there to listen to anything. And the second would be our noisy, noisy soul that needs Be stilled. And so I want to challenge you to picture what your life could be, what your life could look like to enter into the sanctuary of God again and again with a still, silent heart, quieting that inner voice and putting yourself in the humble posture of listening to what God wants to say. I think. Very likely, and we're probably already expecting, it could be through the sermon, through the Word of God that is preached by a pastor. I think that's the most obvious way that we may hear the Word of God, the voice of God. But it could also, I think, happen in the course of singing worship songs or in a moment of prayer. Frankly, it may even be through a conversation with someone during the fellowship time as another brother or sister in Christ speaks into your life. Or it may be none of these things, but an inner conviction of God's still, small voice whispered into your heart as you enter into his presence. And you know, the truth is, I think often when we think about hearing God's voice, we tend to only talk about it in terms of guidance, you know, because we need to make a very important decision and we don't know what to do, so I need to hear from God. It's always about decision-making, knowing God's will but I want to argue to you that I think much of hearing the voice of God is not about decision-making. It's about relationship and the things that God wants to speak into your soul to give you spiritual life. And I think the truth is this, brothers and sisters. I think some of your souls are starving for that voice. You need to hear that voice because that voice is life spiritual life. Maybe it's Jesus simply telling you as you're sitting there in worship how much He loves you. Maybe it's despite your guilty conscience what God wants to whisper in your ear that you are fully forgiven because of what Christ did on the cross. Or He just may want to remind you that He is always with you in every moment and every season of your life. Let's pray. As we uh, close out our worship, I do want to invite you to a little time of reflection here. Think about the attitude with which you tend to approach worship. And I want to challenge you that uh, often it's not in a posture of listening, of stillness and quiet. I think the truth is, we often come to worship very distracted, very busy, very talkative. Uh, You're coming to judge. You're coming to scrutinize. You're coming to stand in the place of God and deciding what you like and don't like about what you're seeing. That is not the heart of worship. The heart that God desires when we come to His holy hill, to His sanctuary, to His presence. It's the humble heart that can be still before Lord, the Lord. And th- honestly, life under the sun is messy. It's filled with disappointments and confusion. And there are proper legitimate times to maybe even shake your fist at heaven and say, I just don't get it. I don't understand. God is not afraid of our doubts. He is not afraid of our honesty. He's not. But sometimes those seasons of doubt and questioning have to give way to seasons of worship. When he says, you're not going to get all the answers that satisfy your soul. And there are things too mysterious and wonderful for you to understand. But you've got to know your place in creation. You have to have the humility to know that I am God and you are not. So be still and know that I am God. God. And I think the thing that God wants to say to us this morning is There have been some things that I have been desperate to speak to your soul But you just don't listen you, you don't even want to hear anything from me You just come to talk and talk and talk And tell me about your life And tell me about everything you think ought to be done by me And how I'm disappointing you And how I'm failing you Maybe what God is trying to say is But could you just be quiet for a few moments and Be still silent, and could you listen and hear the things that I long to fill your soul with? Words of love, words of affirmation, words of comfort, words of encouragement, that though you are going through this storm in your life, and though it may seem like I'm nowhere to be found, I am there. It's not about giving you the right decision to make. It's not about directing your life. It's just about letting you know that I am with you. I weep with you. I long for you. I want to invite you to open your heart like that right now. And would you put yourself in a posture to receive from God the things that he wants to give you through the work of his Holy Spirit.